Well, I want to give you an opportunity to turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. It's in the Old Testament, nestled in toward the end of the Old Testament, one of the small minor prophet books that is there. It's only one chapter long, and as God would see fit, we're going to preach three sermons on this tiny little prophetic book. Why would we as elders decide to give time to the minor prophets? They aren't the gospels. They aren't even one of the major prophets, right? It's just a minor prophet. But let me remind you that the Old Testament is God's word too. As a matter of fact, it is the most, it is most of the Bible. I'm not saying that it's better than the New Testament. I'm simply saying that it's very important. The Old Testament presents for us the dilemma to which the New Testament answers in Christ Jesus. That we're not able to keep the law, that we're sinful, and that we're in need of Christ our Savior. The word minor, the reason that it's given the title minor prophet simply means small. There's 12 minor prophets in scripture. And they're anywhere from one chapter, Obadiah, to 14 chapters long. They stretch over four centuries of time. From around about 700 B.C. to 400 B.C., these 12 minor prophets were written. The shortest of which is the book that we'll be looking at for the next three weeks, Obadiah. But let me begin by reminding you that Obadiah is God's word to us. And there are very specific promises and instructions for us as 21st century believers that can be gleaned from the book of Obadiah. To state it plainly, God has a word for you this morning through the book of Obadiah. My prayer is that you will listen intently to hear God speak to you. And over the next three weeks, we'll be swimming in this little book to hear God speak. And my prayer is that you will, today and for the next two weeks, allow God to use this book to till your heart, to soften your heart, to see him more clearly, to know him, to love him. And to be loved by him. Today our hope is to lay the groundwork for a better understanding of this prophetic book. So that as we divide it really into two parts the next two weeks. We'll have a lot of groundwork. A lot of background. A lot of foundation to stand on. The focus this morning is this. Believing in God's providential love for his people. Is essential to our understanding of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, and our subsequent salvation through faith in him. The book of Obadiah has a lot to do with why Jesus Christ came, lived a life without sin, was crucified on the cross for our sins, and rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. The book of Obadiah has a lot to do with why Christ came, and it has a lot to do with Our salvation through faith in Christ. Ultimately, Obadiah is written not primarily 
as judgment on the people of Eden, as many commentators will suggest, but rather to see the steadfast love of God for his people. Now, let me make really clear. Obadiah is a unique book in the Old Testament. It is the only prophetic book not written specifically to the people of Israel. It is addressed to the people of Edom who were enemies of God. It was a condemnation of them. But I think as we dig into the text and as we really look at the book of Obadiah, we'll see that more than it is a warning to the people of Edom, it is a testament of God's love to the people of Israel. So I want us to see from the beginning God's providential love for his people. I want us to keep that in mind as I read the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and an envoy has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you would be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Timon, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their distress. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain... All the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount, but on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. 
and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, will possess the cities of Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Our primary aim this morning is to follow the providential history of two feuding twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. And as it expands into the conflicting neighbor nations, they become Edom and Israel. And finally, into the spiritually eternal implications that all of this carries throughout the Old Testament. The people of God and the enemies of God. For us to better grasp the full scope of God's love for his people, we must see Obadiah's prophecy in light of the broader picture that God is painting of himself in the entirety of the Bible. And though our endeavor this morning won't be comprehensive, I do believe that we can gather enough scriptural evidence to see God's providential love for his people traced throughout scripture from Genesis and into the New Testament. Following this one storyline of Jacob and Esau. We want to do so with the book of Obadiah in mind. So let's see how Obadiah is a wonderful part of this picture, of this storyline. Well, I said before I read the book of Obadiah that I wanted you to see God's providential love for his people as we see it in the book of Obadiah. But I also want us to see Obadiah's prophetic masterpiece to us. Yes, it was addressed to the people of Eden. But it has very much to say to us. If it didn't, we wouldn't preach it. If it didn't, it wouldn't be in God's word. But it's there. And it's there for us for the next three weeks. Little is known about the man Obadiah, whose name means servant of Yahweh. It's a great name. If anybody hasn't had a boy yet or has one on the way, then uh, I would highly recommend the name. As a matter of fact, there's 12 other men in the Old Testament that have the same name. And there seems to be no connection between one mention of Obadiah to another. I believe that the only time this prophet Obadiah is mentioned is here in this book. It's estimated that around 587 BC, Jerusalem was attacked by nations, the nations of the Babylonian Empire. And Edom, her neighbor to the south, not only stands idly by, but also gloats in the defeat of Jerusalem. Takes advantage 
of the disaster of Jerusalem and adds to her destruction. Edom, Israel's brother, pridefully delights in the day of Israel's disaster. But as I mentioned before, there's more to this story than the country of Edom delighting in the destruction of Israel. And it began before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 3, probably a a familiar text to so many. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says this. Listen to this familiar text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Now, what is Paul writing about in Ephesians chapter 1? I'm not so sure that Paul didn't write this letter to the Ephesians after, immediately after reading the book of Obadiah. Because in his discourse to the church in Ephesus, he explains masterfully what God is doing for us in the book of Obadiah. He's redeeming his own possession. He's saving his people. Simply put, Obadiah is a demonstration to us of the love of God for us. But for us to understand the book of Obadiah, I think it would be wise for us to trace the story of Jacob and Esau back to his origins. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Here's what I want us to see this morning before we begin this endeavor to do this legwork, to do this background, to set this foundation for the book of Obadiah. We want to see three things. The personal feud between Jacob and Esau. All right. So it, it's, it's, an, it's a personal matter between two men, Jacob and Esau, brothers. It's a personal feud. But I also want us to see another part of this storyline, the national conflict. Not just the man Jacob versus the man Esau, but what they become. Entire nations, the nation Israel in conflict with the nation 
of Edom. But there's a third part to the storyline. Not just the personal feud or the national conflict, but the spiritual implications of that personal feud and of that national conflict that spill over into the New Testament. So we want to look at those three things this morning. The personal feud, Jacob and Esau, the national conflict, Israel and Edom, and then the spiritual implications, the people of God and the enemies of God. In the midst of a miraculous act of God, Rebecca becoming pregnant at 60 years of age, we have the beginning of a very tumultuous feud between twin brothers. So if you will, in Genesis chapter 25... Let me read 21 through 26. Genesis 25, 21 through 26. I want us to see in this text the struggled birth. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment. And they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. We see the struggle even in Rebekah's womb between Jacob and Esau. The second thing that I want us to see in this personal feud is the stolen birthright. We have the struggled birth, now we have the stolen birthright. We skip down into the next verse, look at verses 27 through 34. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field And he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die, so of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So we have the struggled birth between Jacob and Esau. We have the stolen birthright. But it doesn't end there. It just continues on. Next, we have the stolen blessing. If we skip over to Genesis chapter 27, verses 26 through 29, we see the stolen blessing. 
Rebekah overhears Isaac saying to Esau that he will bless him if Isaac would go and hunt some of the savory game that he loves to taste. Rebekah plots to send Jacob in his place because Isaac is old and unable to see at this point. This is where we pick up. Then his father Isaac said to him, please come close, not knowing that it was Jacob, and kiss me, my son. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now, may God give you a dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and bless be those who bless you. Jacob has stolen the blessing. We have the struggled birth, the stolen birthright, and now the stolen blessing. But I want you to see also the strained brotherhood. Skip with me down into Genesis chapter 27, verses 35 through 41. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Then he said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not resolved a blessing, excuse me, reserved a blessing for me? But Isaac replied to Esau, behold, I have made him your master and all his relatives I have given to him as servants. And with grain and new wine, I have sustained him. Now, as for you then, What can I do, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you will break his yoke from your neck. So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Just as God ordained Jacob, the younger brother, had now received both the birthright and the blessing of Isaac. And there was very strong enmity between Jacob and Esau. Though Esau and Jacob were both sons of Isaac, only one is being blessed of him. Likewise, just like all on this earth may be sons of God in the sense that they have been made in his image, but only some are blessed by being adopted into the kingdom of his beloved son. As promised, these two brothers would soon bloom into nations of people. The stolen birthright and blessing in this strained brotherhood would not soon be forgotten. And the animosity that once was a personal feud will soon become a conflict 
on the national level. Let's look into God's Word to see this national conflict that arises from the feud between Jacob and Esau. The conflict between two countries is well documented in Scripture. And I only want to give you a couple of examples this morning for time's sake. In Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 18, it says this. From Kadesh, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom. Let me give you a quick background. Moses and the people of God have been set free from Egypt. And they're moving north. From Kadesh, Moses then sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us. That our fathers went down to Egypt, and we stayed in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. But when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town at the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or through the vineyard. We will not even drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway, not turning to the right or left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with sword against you. Just as Esau said that he would. And then 2 Chronicles 21, 8 through 10 further supports this national conflict that exists throughout the, New, the Old Testament. In the days Excuse me. In his days, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. And Jehoram, excuse me, crossed over with commanders and all his chariots with him. And he arose by night and struck down the Edomites who were surrounding him and the commanders of the chariots. So Edom revolted against Judah to this day. Well, there's quite a picture being painted here. And perhaps our knowledge of the Old Testament may be rich, but for the sake of covering our ground well and laying an elementary foundation, let's speak very candidly about what we've read thus far concerning the personal feud between Jacob and Esau and the national conflict between Israel and Edom. From what we've read from Scripture thus far, I see little evidence that sets Jacob apart from Esau and sets Israel apart from Edom. I see sin galore on both sides of the fence. I see wickedness at work among both nations. So to be fair to Edom and clear about Israel, many of these conflicts were the fault of Israel or Jacob. The sin of Israel is a recurring theme in the Old Testament and God often uses as his instrument of punishment enemy nations. Edom is only one of those. But they had been so since the beginning. And though God may have used them for his providential purposes, they were never his people. As far back as we want to trace, any verse that we want to bring into the debate, we could never find 
any evidence that the people of Eden, Edom were God's people. They were his enemies. And God's promises toward Edom are only negative. God promised the demise of Edom. In Isaiah 34, 13, Edom would become a desolation. In Ezekiel 25, 14, Edom would be conquered by Israel. In Ezekiel 34 and Isaiah 34 again, Edom would have a bloody history. Wild animals would inhabit the area. Ezekiel 35 says that trade would cease with Edom. And those who looked on, spectators would be astonished according to Jeremiah 49, 17 of what God does to Edom. And according to Jeremiah 49, 18, one verse later, Edom would never be populated again. So the question is, in the midst of this national conflict, why does God hate Edom? Why does he hate Edom? So why did God hate Edom? Because they hated God. They were God haters. And they loved their sin. Edom's curse was its endless pride and utter unwillingness to repent of its sins before the one true God. They were always enemies of God and thus always recipients of God's judgment. So you might be asking, was Israel not guilty of the same sins? Did you not just make mention of that just a few moments ago? By all means, Israel was guilty of sin as well. But the difference between Israel and Edom, excuse me, and Edom wasn't sin or sinlessness, but rather the, the providential love of God was bestowed on Jacob and not Esau. So now you may be asking, why does God love Israel? That's a better question. It's easy to see why he hates Edom, because they hated God. And they love their sin. But why does he love Israel? Only by the grace of God did Israel ever humble itself, repent of sins, and obey the living God. The national conflict between Israel and Edom only serves as a picture of the greater providential plan of God. God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. This national conflict is painting a picture of the love of God toward his people. To state it differently, the love of God has for his people will never be thwarted. God will never stop loving his people. Once God has bestowed his eternal love upon you, it cannot be reversed. It will never be reversed. Once God has bestowed his love upon you, it cannot be reversed. Ultimately, the promise of God to tear down the wicked territory of Edom is a parallel promise of God to save the people of Israel. They were working hand in hand. So the better question to ask is not does why does God hate Esau, but rather why does he love Israel? Look with me in Malachi, probably presumed that we would head here. Malachi chapter 1, the first five verses continue to explain this love that God had toward the people of Israel and hatred toward the people of Esau. Malachi chapter 1, 
the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Do you want to see a demonstration of how I loved you? Listen to what God says to him. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Now this is God's explanation of how he loves Jacob, how he loves Israel. Was not Esau's Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the runs. Thus the Lord of, excuse me, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, whether we can completely grasp what Malachi is communicating to us today or not, does not change the reality of what's being said. So let's try to simplify. Let's try to put it on terms. And whether we can wrap our minds around and grasp and agree with the concept, let's at least agree with what God's Word says. It says, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Perhaps... Our view of God is being strained by this theme in the Old Testament of God's love toward Jacob and his hatred toward Esau. God's intent was that his name be magnified. We see that in Malachi 1.5. And it would make good sense to us. I think we would have no problem agreeing with If God wants to magnify his name, then just demonstrate your love to the people of Israel. Just love Israel. Isn't that what we'd say to somebody else? If you want them to think well of you, then just love them. But why does God have to hate Esau to demonstrate his love to Israel? God loves Israel by defeating his enemies outside of his border. How is this a demonstration of God's love? God loves Israel because he has chosen them as his people, according to Malachi 1.5. And it will lead to the magnification of the Lord beyond the border of Israel to defeat Israel's Arch enemy, Edom. God loves Israel because it was God's plan to get more glory for himself by loving them. And it was God's plan to get more glory for himself by defeating his enemies, the people of Eden. But the providential love of God is not complete in the destiny of two men or even two nations, but rather fulfilled and more fully understood in the eternal purposes of God who has mercy on the souls 
of repentant men. So let's try to shift, if we can, without the full comprehension of why God loves Esau, excuse me, loves Jacob and hates Esau, and why God has made Israel his people and Edom his enemies. Let's push out of the Old Testament, not fully grasping it, and into the New Testament where we begin to see the spiritual implications of this storyline. Our understanding of the judgment of God on Esau and the people of Eden, the book of Obadiah, must rest solely on faith in God's sovereign and mysterious love for his people. But our understanding of God's love for his people must extend past the man Jacob and past the people Israel. Though God's love was fixed on Jacob, yes, and the people of Israel, yes, there is a more spiritual thread at work in all this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, we see Paul writing to the people of Israel who found themselves in Rome. And this is what he writes to them. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed... Listen very carefully to what he says next. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, you descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it is said to her, The older, remember Genesis 25, will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's love for us, just as it was for Jacob and the people of Israel, is not about our quality, but his mercy. It's not about our willpower, but his choice. It's not about our goodness, but his glory. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about God. Choosing to love a people. See, according to James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if we are to receive the grace of God in our lives, we must be humble people. But if God's love for us was in any way based on our ability to make ourselves humble, we would in fact be proud of our enduring humility. 
The reality is we must helplessly have the love of God lavished on us by his merciful and gracious choice. This reality is clear in the life of Jacob. Jacob did nothing to earn the love of God. God bestowed it on him. The people of Israel did nothing to win God's affection. God chose to love them. Jacob wasn't any more sinless than Esau, but God chose to pour out his love on Jacob. Jacob doesn't deserve this, but listen to me. But he humbly embraced it. And when we see the people, the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, in right relationship with excuse me, in right relationship with God is because they were walking in humility, receiving the love that God was lavishing on them. And the same is true today. We must only embrace the love of God lavished upon us in humility. God is consistent. The way he was with Jacob is the way he was with Israel. And the way he was with Israel is the way he is with us. He doesn't change. He's always loved his people. And that promises to never cease. In the same sense, he always opposed his enemies with divine justice. Humble yourself before the sovereign of the universe. So how do we get here? How do we get to what I'm saying at this moment? How do we get to humble yourself before the sovereign of the universe From the vision of Obadiah. What's the connection between the two? Well, my sincere hope is that we will better understand this prophecy we intend to look more closely at over the next few weeks. But we must lay this foundation of why God would pour out his wrath in the book of Obadiah on the people of Eden to begin with. I said at the beginning of the sermon that the focus this morning was this. Believing in God's providential love for his people is essential to our understanding of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. We'll see in the book of Obadiah next week why Jesus came to this earth and our subsequent salvation through faith in him. I believe Obadiah is about God's salvific love for his people. I want to give you just a taste in closing this morning of what Obadiah has to say concerning this. Look briefly at three promises found in Obadiah that I believe we can walk away today and believe in and that we will preach on in the next two weeks. The applicatory promises of God in the book of Obadiah. We'll look at three verses, each one being a point. Number one is God's judgment is coming. You can believe that. God's judgment is coming. Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealing will return on your own head. Like so many of the Psalms that we love to read, the true believer must look past the seemingly disparaging situation and fix his eyes on Jesus to remember God has promised to defend his people. See, in the book of Obadiah, verse 15 that we just read, Edom is about to receive this judgment that God promises. But let's not forget 
that the reason that Edom's about to be judged is because Israel was just handily defeated in a gruesome manner. And if that's all Israel could see in that moment was their defeat, their utter helplessness, then they'd be no different than Edom. But they have a promise that God's judgment is coming to his enemies, to those who oppose them. Because if you're an enemy of the, God's people, you're an enemy of God. Christ is our only defense when the wrath of God is unleashed on the day of judgment. God's judgment's coming, but there is hope for his people. Through, excuse me, though God may lovingly discipline us for a season, we don't face his wrathful judgment. He will most assuredly judge those who harm his people. Actions against God, I said it a minute ago, actions against God's people are actions against God, and he will act. So here's my question. God's judgment is coming. Are you on the right side of God's looming eternal judgment? The second thing that I want us to see, a promise that we can believe in from the book of Obadiah is that God will save his people. Obadiah 17, just two verses later. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Building off the coming judgment is the promise to spare some. A remnant. Those who carry the label of my people will escape God's final judgment. To escape the wrath of God to come, one must be hidden in Christ. That is to have to be placed, excuse me, to have placed all their hope and faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered a bloody death. He absorbed the wrath of God to shield us from the pending judgment. He literally paid the full price for our sins on the cross. Christ justified sinful man from the eternal judge by paying the necessary price for our sins. The wrath of God was appeased through the death of his beloved son. Our sins were atoned for through the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We have been forgiven of our sins. He has made us clean in the sight of of a holy God because Jesus has imputed to us his righteousness and he has taken on our sins and his sacrifice was enough. Justice has been served and God will save his people. So let me ask you, are you trusting in Christ's atoning work on the cross for your escape? There's one more promise that I want us to see this morning. The kingdom will be the Lord's. The very last verse of Obadiah, verse 21 says, The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. God is sovereign over all and he promises, according to Obadiah 21, He promises the kingdom will be his. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. So I have another question. Are you ready for the kingdom of God? Are you ready for the kingdom of God? See, I believe the book of Obadiah is simple. God will judge his enemies. God will save his people. 
and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Humble yourselves and believe. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would cause among us if there's any who have never heard of the coming judgment of God, who have never trusted in Christ's atoning work on the cross for their escape. Father, I pray that these two things would become a reality to them this morning, that they would believe judgment is coming and they would hope in Christ for their salvation. Father, I pray this morning that there's any among us that needs to put their faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, risen from the grave, that they would do so this morning as their escape from the coming wrath. Father, I plead with you, I beseech you this morning to save some. And Father, for us, to whom you have already bestowed your love upon, Father, humble us. Father, cause us to remain humble so that we're not opposed by you. We see what you do. We see the destruction that you bring upon the enemies of God. We want to cling to Christ all the more. We want to walk in humility. We want to know your love more fully. We beg you, God, this morning to show us your love. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.